Oh, hi, it's me, John Moe, from the hilarious world of depression. Yeah, hi, um, I'm here to watch movies with you. Brought some popcorn, soft drinks. Oh, thanks, I will come in. Let me get my shoes off here. You'll notice that I'm not wearing a mask, and we are hugging like old times when we could just hang out with our friends and not worry about it, because this premise is pretend. Now, as you may know, we asked our listeners for recommendations for movies that get depression right, not oversimplified, not people being sad and then being somehow cured by a happy ending. Movies that feel honest and truthful, and we got a lot of great responses. In fact, a bunch of other listeners are are here with me. Is it okay if we all come in? Great. Okay, come on in, everyone. Come on in. File in. No, no, no pushing. <laughs> I hope you have a big couch. There are a lot of us. So we're going to have everyone speak up and give their picks, and then we'll build out a long movie queue, and then we'll just spend days burning through all of them. Right, right there in front of your, your TV. It's not like we have anything better to do. Oh, and a special treat. Allison Wilmore, the film critic from Vulture.com, will be coming by. I, I gave her your address. That's cool, right? There was one movie we heard about from our listeners over and over and over. And that group of four people over there, right over by the wall there, they're going to tell you all about it. My name is Mona. And I'm from Germany. Um, this is Michael. I am from Abingdon, Virginia. Hi, my name is Marianne Kozlowski. I live in Monroe, Michigan. My name is Joseph Conley. I'm from Indianapolis, Indiana. And the movie that I chose is Melancholia by Lars von Trier. Melancholia. The movie Melancholia by Lars von Trier. Kirsten Dunst's character in Melancholia is, for me, the best portrayal of depression in a movie. Really brings across the actual feeling of depression. Not only sadness, but hopelessness and a deep void on the inside. It also illustrates how distorted the perception of time can be when you're depressed. The movie begins with her about to get married and follows her as she engages in various compulsive destructive behaviors in response to her dysfunctional family dynamic. There's a scene where her sister tries to help her take a bath, but she can't even lift her foot to step into it. Uh, I've had bouts of clinical depression that have felt exactly like this. You can't explain what's wrong, but you're so numb. You, know, you can barely be bothered to blink or to breathe, let alone to take active measures to, you know, practice self-care. In true dramatic von Trier fashion, this portrayal of depression is paired with a storyline about the end of the world. In the concurrent narratives, Trier cultivates a very real sense of impending doom that matches the experience of anxiety and depression familiar to many of us. It's proven that the apocalypse is coming. She's been wishing for annihilation for some time, and now that it's quite literally looming overhead, her mood lifts. I can't tell you how many times I've laid in bed yearning for a meteor to obliterate me. It's a thought pattern that's hard to explain to the undepressed, let alone depict so perfectly in a movie. The physical manifestation of her depression is coming to destroy the world, and she couldn't be more at peace. Uh, you know, it's about the imminent destruction of the planet Earth. And for me, when I'm feeling really down and really bad, um, 
that's kind of how things feel. It feels like that doom and total destruction of everything uh, in my life is inevitable. That doom is inevitable. Even though the world is about to be completely destroyed, her friends and family are still telling her to go about her daily business of, well, you have to eat and you have to take a bath and things like that. And it's like, that's ridiculous. The world's about to end. So what's the point? Um, so that's why uh, I think Melancholia gets it right. Here's a clip from Melancholia. Kirsten Dunst as Justine is talking to her sister. The earth is evil. We don't need to grieve for it. What? Nobody will miss it. Good movie. By definition, a bummer. Yes. How about a comedy next? Or a sort of semi-comedy? Mike, you want to join in? My name is Mike Standish, and I live in Seattle, Washington. When I first saw Stand By Me uh, when I was in sixth grade, I didn't really understand or even know about depression. Um, But I immediately identified with the kids in that movie and how they were struggling. And I think, in retrospect, it's because they were all processing some kind of trauma in ways that any middle school kid would immediately recognize and find familiar, um, some of which are healthy and some of which are not. Uh, Chris Chambers, he acted out in school until he found a group of similarly troubled kids and started talking with Gordy Lachance. Teddy Duchamp wasn't so lucky and was unable to find really healthy ways to process that. And he ended up in and out of jail at the end of the movie. Like, all four of these kids were, I think, depressed and didn't really understand or have access to any kind of care. Um, I remember seeing the Gordy Lachance character using writing as a way of processing his feelings, and I thought, yes, that's how I do it too. I write. I mean, you could be a real writer someday, Gordy. Fuck writing. I don't want to be a writer. It's stupid. It's a stupid waste of time. That's your dad talking. Bullshit. Full true. There's somebody else like me who is confused and mad and frustrated and sometimes feels hopeless and ready to give up. And that felt so familiar. It was so encouraging seeing the end of that movie when Gordy is all grown up and happier and he has a career and a family and he puts the finishing touches on a book. Um, The whole movie, even the villains in it, are all just these teenagers who are compensating for the fact that a bunch of horrible shit has happened to them And they don't really know what to do about it or how to carry it with them in healthy ways. And that's the heart of dealing with depression for me. And this came out, you know, in the mid-80s when nobody talked about depression. And for me, that was the first time it ever felt familiar. Next up is Heather with a Netflix pick. I'm Heather from the UK. And I found I really related to the Horse Girl movie. I watched it on Netflix and having had an episode of psychotic depression myself, I really think that Alison Brie nailed that sense of secretive disorientation perfectly. Horse Girl stars Alison Brie as a woman experiencing a depression that develops into a collapse of reality. Here she's talking to a therapist at a hospital. That actually makes a lot of sense. It's like how you told me yesterday that I had met you before a few weeks ago 
I'm sorry. I didn't. I didn't. Does, I said it totally works. Remember how I was telling you that there was a guy I was seeing in my dream and like in the abductions, but there was a girl there too, and that girl was my roommate here, and she remembers the abductions too because we were both waking up. But Ron, the guy, wasn't, so he doesn't remember anything, and they brought her here from another time. So like, it all makes sense. It's it's like a loop. It's continual. It 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 has to happen. I'm not a clone. I am interested in how Alison's character kept losing time and how trauma might have been playing into how much she was losing touch with her life. Now, we've already heard from our guests in Germany and UK. People traveled a long way to get to your movie night. That's kind of an honor, including someone from India. Hi, my name is Neil and I live in New Delhi in India. I'm a big fan of the show. Uh, my favorite movie about depression is Girl Interrupted, which is Angelina Jolie, Winona Ryder, uh, Brittany Murphy, among others. Lisa thinks she's hot because she's a sociopath. <sighs> Uncertainty about goals and a generally pessimistic attitude are often observed. Oh, that's me. That's everybody. Uh, it mostly takes place in an asylum, so it's not strictly about depression, but there's a pl- like, but there's a variety of mental health issues there. I mean, Lisa, which is Angelina Jolie's character, is a charismatic sociopath. Uh, Susanna, has, uh, which is played by Winona Ryder, has borderline personality disorder. Someone's a pathological liar. So there's a host of issues there. But what's appealing to me is that the girls are all like a team. Uh, they often feel like no one gets them. And even though they're fighting amongst each other, they kind of know that the only people who really understand what they're going through are the other people, the other patients uh, at the asylum. And sometimes having depression is like that because no matter how well you explain it to uh, the normies uh, or no matter how empathetic the other person is, the only people who really get it are the people who've who've been there. Okay, as long as we're on a... I guess a harrowing kick. Let's kick it over to Sean. Where's Sean? Sean? Oh, there you are. Hi, this is Sean from Minneapolis. And the movie that depicts depression most accurately for me is Moon with Sam Rockwell. Without giving away too much of the puzzle of the film, Sam Rockwell's character becomes increasingly unsure of what's real and what's a fiction created by his mind, whether it's a dream or a hallucination. And pretty soon, his inability to tell the difference means that nothing really matters to him anymore. And it's not just that he's sad. It's that he can no longer trust his own mind and his perceptions. And that totally cuts him off from other people and from reality itself. So at one point, he drives away from the moon base. And you see and hear him from a distance just break down and weep at his total alienation from the world and the apparent impossibility of escape from that prison of his deceptive mind. And it's like a knife in my heart. I know that feeling and it is exactly as unbearable as it sounds. Cheers. I don't have a clip from that one, but just picture Sam Rockwell groaning and grunting and slowly traveling around the moon. I think we all feel like we're slowly traveling around the moon sometimes, groaning and grunting. Oh, I bet that's Allison. Allison, hi. Hey, Allison Wilmore is a film critic for Vulture.com, and Allison and I talked about this ahead of time. And Allison, 
I asked you to come up with a few ideas of some films that you think get it right. And uh, when you sent them, I, I had a head slap of, oh, of course, for at least two of them. But one of them really did surprise me, which was The Babadook. Yes. If you haven't had the pleasure yet, I do really strongly recommend it. It's a film by Jennifer Kent, who is an Australian filmmaker. And it is about a woman named Amelia, played by Essie Davis, who is a single mother. She is a widow. And she has a six-year-old boy uh, named Samuel, who is going through what you could say, like, a difficult stage in his life. Uh, and that is exacerbated by their discovery of an incredibly creepy picture book mysteriously found in the household uh, that I think becomes this, maybe introduces this figure, this menacing figure called the Babadook into the house. Okay, let's check out a clip from the Babadook. This is Amelia and her son, Sam, picking out a book at bedtime. You can choose one tonight. Where'd you get these? On the shelf. If it's in a word or it's in a look, you can't get rid of the Babadook. Or maybe that figure is somehow representative of one or both of, of their kind of emotional states at that moment. And I think that's one of the things it does so well is that it's a very creepy movie, but it is equally creepy about the possible supernatural explanations and maybe the psychological ones. Okay. So is is the Babadook, who is a, a kind of grinning, big, creepy guy in a hat, as I recall, is that the embodiment of depression, you think? Or is the are the characters depressed and then... Like, who is the Babadook in the analogy? Right, right. I think that I, I, one of the things I like about the Babadook is I don't think it, it like entirely just surrenders to being an allegory. You know, like, I don't think you necessarily say like this character stands for this and this. But I do think like Essie Davis's performance is a great kind of performance of someone dealing with depression um, in a very grounded way within this really kind of sometimes outrageous landscape of, of a possible haunting, a possible possession. You know, she is someone who, and I think like, and tied into this is like, that it's a portrait of kind of maternal ambivalence. You know, she loves her child, but her child is also just like, like, it, like taking care of her child by herself is like this draining experience for her. And I think you see a lot in her performance, someone who is just, struggling to just like engage and go through kind of the basic, you know, things that have to happen in your day. Yes. And I think you just see someone who is like, has nothing left in her to kind of give her child or herself. And like the ways in which that slowly kind of like can leave you feeling just like a smear on the ground. The struggles that we all go through, but made even worse and then made still worse by a Baba Duke in your house. Yes. Uh, you know, she's, I, I think, like, the ways in which the movie mixes these totally creepy uh, things about this, like, figment, this, like, terrifying figment, with also just feeling like, you know, she's in bed uh, trying to have some private time and it's, like, one moment to herself and her son kind of, like, is having a nightmare and comes crashing in. And you yes. can just sense this feeling of just, like, the world is, like, just weighing on her in ways that just feel unbearable. And I just, I, I find that part of the film uh, something that's maybe underappreciated, you know, that it it, it is creepy 
but it is also extremely, I think, kind of psychologically grounded. Let's talk about a little bit older film, World's Greatest Dad. Yeah, I love this film so much. And it's, you know, I, Bobcat Goldthwait, as a director, has yes. like made these movies with outrageous premises that often turn out to be like really kind of like emotionally rich and like, like yeah. complicated and bold. Um, and there, there's some, and this is my favorite of them. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think the closest I can come to describing what this movie attempts to people as like Heathers. It's a really darkly funny movie that is also like just so unafraid. The the plot in a nutshell is what? This is Robin Williams. <laughs> yes. Um, so he plays a high school English teacher who's a kind of failed writer in general, feeling like uh, he's he's just unseen in his life. And his teenage son is just so unremittingly awful. <laughs> just like a kid who is just mean, keeps spewing slurs, is only interested in pornography, and dies in an autoerotic accident, a masturbatory accident. Um, and he, in order to, as like a kind of gesture of kindness to, and love to his son, uh, he, he stages it instead as a suicide and writes a note. And the note then becomes this phenomenon, and he writes then a whole journal that gets taken up by the school as this incredible insight into... Uh, you know, this tortured, depressed, misunderstood soul. And of mm. course, it's all a lie. But I think, you know, <laughs> which is like an astonishing, I think, really yeah. kind of like gutsy premise. Yeah. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I think that this movie does really well is, you know, it it shows the person who is depressed, I would say, is Robin Williams' character, you know, who is this person who feels like, he is not valued by anyone in his life around him. And, uh, you know, from his students to the girlfriend seems to be drifting away to his son. Uh, and then he finally does get recognition. And it's like even lonelier, you know, it's mm -hmm. even more isolating than it was before. And I think that that's I th something that's so smart because... It is, I think, very easy to also think about the idea of, like, the romantic comedy fix and this person finally comes back. And I think that same idea of being, like, like when I'm recognized, you know, when people finally see me uh, for the greatness I am, then that will fix, you know, right. these things inside me. <laughs> and it never does. No, no. <laughs> All right. So that's World's Greatest Dad. And finally, Anomalisa. This is one that a little more under the radar for most people. Yeah, you know, it's a film from Charlie Kaufman, who is this phenomenal writer and then director. But Anomalisa is a movie of his from 2015 that was a stop motion animation movie uh, that he co-directed and he wrote. And it has like one of these great, you know, visual metaphors for an aspect of, of its main character's depression. It's like one of the kind of smartest things I've seen to put that on screen, which is that every person in this world has the same face. All of the puppets, yeah. They're, and they're all voiced by Tom Noonan. So like every, every person he encounters as he goes to Cleveland to give um, a speech at a convention, he is like, it, it's like an identical world, you know? And then he meets one woman randomly who's at the convention who doesn't have that face and just gloms onto her, you know, with this intense ill-fated energy to want right. to be like, pull me out of this. 
And here's a clip where Michael is talking to Lisa, who is not like everyone else. She's an anomaly. Anomalisa. They don't want us to be together. I think they'll kill you if they need to. Michael? They explained it to me, the hotel manager. He explained it to me. They're all one person and they love me. Everyone is one person but you and me. You're the only other person in the world. Really? That's so beautiful. Charlie Kaufman is, is such a strong writer. And I think in particular, this main character, he's voiced by David Thewlis, is a really, un, like, is such a, it's such a good representation of someone just feeling so kind of like numb to the world, but also being a jerk, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think like it balances that out, like his personality and his personal problems are like intertwined with his depression, but not necessarily uh, like due to it, you know? Right, and I right. think that it's very smart about being like, you're not necessarily going to be that much nicer should you be able to get, you know, past this a little bit. Uh, your personality is still your personality. Right. You're still stuck being you, even if you are, meet someone who isn't you and has a different face. What about this idea of a responsibility to portray depression in a truthful way? Because I'm kind of split on it, to tell you the truth. Like, I'm really dedicated to the idea of informing the world about the realities of mental illness. Like, that's super important to me. But also, as a writer, I kind of think, I should be able to do whatever I want. I should be, you know, if, if I want to change how something works, I should get to do that to serve my characters and my plot and, and just, even if I just feel like it. Um, so I, I'm conflicted myself. Where do you come down on that? It's a tough question because I think it also, you know, it raises the question of being like, is there one right way to portray depression? And like, there obviously isn't. People have so many different experiences with it. Uh, and I think sometimes when there's this real feeling like paying attention to like the clinical and to, you know, what's like, I, I think that, that it can sometimes flatten what's this enormous spectrum of experiences. So I think that that's something to think about. But I also think the answer to that is to have a wide range of, of depictions on screen, you know, so that it doesn't feel like the only time you see depression is in the romantic comedy sense, say, you know, where it's something someone goes through that seems to be really interchangeable with being just sad. <laughs> yeah. And then it gets, you know, it gets, it gets fixed. And I think that having wider arrays gives some space for, you know, poetic license in there as well, because you're not just seeing this kind of narrow and unrealistic depiction. You're seeing a whole different uh, kind of them. Allison Wilmore writes about movies for Vulture.com. Thanks, Allison. Wow, you guys, this is going to be the best movie night ever and the most depressing, but also the most oddly comforting. Listen, let's let's take a break. Grab a soda in the kitchen if you like. Stretch your legs. I'm going to put out some carrot sticks and celery and stuff like that. But listen, don't go far because just ahead, a quest to get rid of some jewelry, a guy who hates Merlot, and a character named Sadness. For the moment, I'm going to just stand here and talk to myself about sponsors for a while. 
The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses. Not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having a lot of laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression, maybe demystifying it a little bit, make it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It's serious. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. That can be an awkward conversation, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use, like what to say or not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Okay, well, everyone, everyone back? Comfortable seats, everybody? Cool. Okay, let's dive into some more recommendations, some previews of films that get depression right. I know a lot of people like this next one. So, Eric and Anna, where are you? Okay, hi, good. Let's have you both talk about this movie. It's a 2004 Michelle Gondry film written by Charlie Kaufman that takes place in a world where you can have difficult memories, like from a collapsed relationship, simply erased. This is Eric Stamey from Irmo, South Carolina. Hi, this is Anna from Oregon. One of the movies that got depression right for me was Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind exemplifies depression because we get to experience the cognitive distortions of the protagonist, Joel Barish, played by Jim Carrey. From overgeneralization to emotional reasoning, and all or nothing thinking to labeling, we see firsthand how these cognitive distortions affect his well-being. It spoke to the part of me that just doesn't want to feel anymore. Um, as a depressed and anxious person, my feelings can be heavy and painful. And um, a lot of times I just want it to stop. And it's frustrating to me that I just can't be a normie. <laughs> Anxiety occurs when we fixate on the future, and depression when we fixate on the past. And this film definitely spotlights Joel's depression. If I could just erase what's in my brain and replace it with something that allows me to just be a normal, happy person. But in the end, we do get hope. As Joel talks to a Clementine, played by Kate Winslet, before losing his memory of her forever, she asks, What do we do? Enjoy it. Enjoy it. His two-word response means we must escape from our imprisonment with past events and begin to live in the now. Mental peace resides in being in the present moment and overcoming the mirages that cognitive distortions present. Ooh, Eric, nice editing there. That was cool. Hi, I'm Doug Fisick, and I live in New York City. I recently watched a film called Aniara on Hulu. It's a Swedish sci-fi drama based on a 1956 poem by Harry Martinson about a spaceship full of passengers on its way to Mars, veering off course with no hope of turning around or rescue. It is hands down one of the most despairing films I've ever seen, and that includes The Road from 2009, and some viewers have dismissed it as just so much tragedy porn. 
I can understand why many viewers wouldn't enjoy or otherwise appreciate Aniara as a film. But for me, it is one of the most fascinating and insightful explorations of hopelessness and despair that I've ever seen. These feelings, which are typically at the center of my own depression, are painful and hardly ideal, but they are not without richness, profundity, or aesthetic value. Aniara, it seems to me, understands that. And for that reason, though it is not for everyone, I strongly recommend it. All right. Awesome, Doug. I didn't know there was a genre of depression sci-fi, but here we are. Well, let's swing from sci-fi just a short distance over to fantasy. Over to you, Amy. My name is Amy, and I'm from San Jose, California. And the only movie that I have ever seen that was able to really present the internal experience I had with my worst episode of depression was Lord of the Rings Return of the King. The Ring like my own depression and anxiety, kept Frodo in a place of dark isolation. In order to be free of it, one has to throw it into this terrifying, bubbling pit of fire. What are you waiting for? Just let it go! The ring has such a powerful hold on Frodo, as did my depression, that he struggles with parting from it. But its release, of course, is the only way to save Frodo's world. After, he needs much rest and others are willing to care for him as they know how intense his journey was. Thank you, Amy. Now over to, well, I guess another Amy to tell us about a more low-budget film. Hello, this is Amy Salloway from Minneapolis, Minnesota. One of my favorite movies is The Station Agent, this beautiful, quiet, little indie film. It was Peter Dinklage's breakout movie, actually, um, about a young man named Finn who has dwarfism, who is willed by his friend um, an empty, abandoned train station in the middle of nowhere, New Jersey. And he goes there to live, thinking that he will have a life of solitude, free of other people. And that is not what happens. The The thing that I love about this movie is that the three main characters, Finn and then Olivia, a woman who lives nearby, and Joe, who runs a side-of-the-road coffee cart, they're all lonely. They're all palpably lonely. And as far as Finn and Olivia go, those two characters are are for sure both depressed and are both living with grief and loss and even self-loathing. Um, but they they show that totally differently from each other. So Finn is completely shut down. He does not express emotion. He has shoved everything down. He does not want to talk to people or see people. He is isolating. He does not ever want to have to be confronted with the pain that he's carrying around. And Olivia is an artist and is big and flailing and needy and frazzled. And you can see her doing everything possible every day to sort of talk herself down from the ledge. I just love how it speaks to the reality without exaggerating it or making it larger than life that we can be in pain with other people, but still not be on the same page of pain. <laughs> Next up, Dave. Where's Dave? Oh, hi, Dave. And a lot of people will know this one by a short snippet of song. I got you, babe. 
Hi, my name is Dave, and I'm from Lombard, which is a suburb of Chicago. Actually, not too far from Woodstock, which is where they filmed Groundhog Day, which is the answer to my uh, answer to the question, what film do I think embodies depression the best? I'm not entirely convinced Harold Ramis intended on metaphorically showcasing depression when he directed the sublime 1990s comedy, but if you address the cyclical nature, however, of Bill Murray's character who unnervingly but knowingly goes through the same exact hardwired routine day in and day out, he can't seem to find an escape. It's almost sardonically soul-gnawing not to admit that depression is similar. It is another day like many before and many after that you wake up into and feel the same daunting inadequacies. While Bill Murray's character showed the town inevitably that he was a good and not selfish person and earned Rita's love, he was finally freed. When Chekhov saw the long winter, he saw a winter bleak and dark and bereft of hope. Yet we know that winter is just another step in the cycle of life. But standing here among the people of Punxsutawney and basking in the warmth of their hearths and hearts, I couldn't imagine a better fate than a long and lustrous winter. From Punxsutawney, it's Phil Connors. So long. While being a good person doesn't rationally coincide with depression, it's not inconceivable for people who struggle with it to struggle with self-efficacy, worth, and in turn relationships with others. Murray's character was abysmal during many of the scenes behaviorally, struggling on an interpersonal level with others and with the situation other times. It's literally almost as if you can embody a personification of depression itself. Okay, let's complete that Bill Murray double shot. Hi, my name's Bill. I live in Fayetteville, Arkansas. For me, the first movie that comes to mind is Lost in Translation. The main characters are functional depressives who arrive at similar emotional states from different directions and find common ground that makes pretty good movie material. And both actors, Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson, have experienced depression themselves. I think that helps them make their characters realistic and complex in ways that actors who haven't experienced depression probably couldn't. I notice a lot of the movies that get it right are comedies that aren't entirely comedic. Groundhog Day, World's Best Dads, Stand By Me. Travis, you want to take a turn here because your pick is kind of along that same vibe. Travis has a pick that's a movie about wine and people and relationships and depression, but also a lot about wine. Hi, this is Travis Baird from Oklahoma City. Uh, the movie that I feel gets depression right, at least for me, is Sideways. I see so many of my worst tendencies in Miles, the character played by Paul Giamatti. I see the nagging doubts and circular thoughts that keep him from really being present and in the moment when he's at dinner with uh, Jack and Maya. And I see the anger he has with himself when he blows it with Maya later that night, uh, standing in front of the mirror, just cursing himself out, just so angry at himself. And I see the disgust mixed with envy that he has for Jack. Uh, he sees, you know, he's disgusted with his behavior, but he sees that he feels that maybe things could be so much easier if he could live a life like Jack where he just doesn't care and uh, could just be free and not worry all the time. Shut up, shut up, shut up! Jesus Christ, man, what the hell is wrong with you? Please, just shut up! Fuck! God. What's with the hostility, man? I know you're a little frustrated with your life right now, but you can choose to be less hostile. 
Uh, and, and specifically the whole saga with his book getting published. You know, he mentions the book being published, but as soon as he says it, he immediately discredits the idea. It's never going to happen. It's a pipe dream. You know, this is uh, not going to happen. And then, of course, when it, when it actually doesn't get published, uh, he decides, you know, he's not much of a writer and even says, I'm not much of anything, really. Uh, you know, he bases so much of his self-worth on his accomplishments. And I've caught myself doing that, you know, on a daily basis, uh, making, thinking that I'm only worth what I've been able to put out into the world. Uh, you know, Miles' character is so close to me that he's, he's essentially a cautionary tale for me. He's my ghost of Christmas future. He's, he's what I worry about becoming uh, if I don't, you know, find a way to get a handle on myself. I am not drinking any fucking Merlot! Okay, okay, relax, Miles. Okay, next up is Sarah with a film that landed Nicole Kidman a Best Actress Oscar. I'm Sarah Lopuznikova from Minneapolis. For me, the movie that got depression right is The Hours. It's an extraordinarily accurate portrayal of being in such acute, all-encompassing pain that the only thing you think can end that pain is death. Here's a clip. Nicole Kidman as Virginia Woolf. You call me ungrateful. My life has been stolen from me. living in a town I have no wish to live in. I'm living a life I have no wish to live. Okay, back to you, Sarah. I've been there a few times, unfortunately, and I sobbed in the theater bathroom after the movie ended because it brought my own pain back so clearly. Well, I can't think of a harder, sharper turn than going from the hours into the film that Zach suggests. Zach? Konnichiwa. This is Zach Pointer from Sapporo, Japan, I picked Inside Out for the movie that depicts depression the best because the character Sadness fits it. Oh, we just fell down. We should cry. Sadness, no! Ah, we can't cry in front of other kids! Stop her! Stop it, Sadness! I can't help it, Joy. I'm entering a sadness spiral. Disgusting! She's getting tears on me! When I'm depressed, I don't listen to Joy. I feel sluggish and I feel unmotivated and I don't want to do anything, and I do stupid things sometimes. And I feel that the character Sadness in this movie did the similar things. You know, anyone can be depressed, whether they're Virginia Woolf or a cartoon manifestation of sadness. Depression does not discriminate. Leanna, uh, you have a film that didn't really rock the box office, but you identified with. Hi, my name is Leanna Salva, and I live in Washington, D.C., uh, the first movie that came to mind when thinking about ones that accurately show people with depression is the movie Where'd You Go, Bernadette? It's a 2019 movie based on the book by Maria Semple. I think that it's really hard to find movies that show people with depression who still have to get through each day like everything is fine. It isn't all crying in a corner and 15 minutes later everything is fixed. We still have stuff to do. We have jobs to go to, groceries to shop for, bills to pay. Where'd You Go, Bernadette shows a woman who is creative, passionate, and loves her family. She's had depression and social anxiety for years ever since she quit being a successful and brilliant architect. In one scene, Bernadette, played by Kate Blanchett, meets up with an old friend from her architecture days for lunch that turns into 
basically word vomit. City planners here. And they never met a beautiful view that I want to block. It was a 20-story old folks home with zero architectural integrity. And believe me, that is the first time that the words architectural and integrity have ever been used together in a sentence about Seattle. And whoever laid out this place, I mean, they never met a two-way street. They didn't suddenly, and for no reason, want to turn into a one-way street. Sometimes when you don't talk to anyone for a long time and close yourself off, it only takes one person to ask, how are you, before everything comes out. And you can talk for hours without taking a breath or allowing the other person to say anything, like you've been saving everything up. It's a really weird side effect of this type of life, but it does happen, and I can't exactly explain why. When Kate Blanchett acts in this scene, she does not sob. She doesn't look sad. She doesn't ask for pity. She does complain a little bit, but she doesn't sound like somebody who is depressed. And we'll close out here with a comedy full of laughs and depression and rage and loneliness. Susan? My name is Susan Pegger. I'm from Pittsburgh, PA. And a movie that gets depression right is Bridesmaids. In Bridesmaids, Kristen Wiig's character Annie has lost her bakery her income, and her self-esteem. Seeing the success of her best friend's wedding and her new friend, the replacement friend, shows her another way she's losing at life. She feels unwanted, she starts making bad choices, lashes out, and pushes away people trying to be close to her. Annie. Lillian, this is not the you that I know. The you that I know would have walked in here and rolled your eyes and thought this was completely over-the-top, ridiculous, and stupid. Look at the shower! Look at that! Fucking cookie! Did you really think that this group of women was gonna finish that cookie? Really? Oh, you know what? That reminds me, actually. I never got a chance to try that fucking cookie! I love this movie. At the wedding, at the end of the movie, the group Wilson Phillips performs. They perform the song that you think of most when you think about Wilson Phillips. The Wilson Phillips song, Hold On, is a little nod to Annie's struggle throughout the movie. Okay, so that's all the movies we'll be watching tonight. At your place. All of us. We're not going to leave until they're all finished. Or, you know what? Should we just take this list of movies that can be found in the description of this podcast episode and work through it on our own? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, well, good night. You have such a beautiful home. The Hilarious World of Depression is a production of American Public Media. The production team for this episode includes Chrissy Pease, Christina Lopez, Phyllis Fletcher, and John Miller. Recording engineers include the Thwadballs. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. If you need help, confidential help is available. Text the word HOME to 741-741 for the crisis text line or call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. Free, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. 
The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. MakeItOK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting that conversation can be awkward, but MakeItOK has tips on what to say and what not to say. It has stories of hope from people who've been there. You can take the pledge to Make It OK at MakeItOK.org. HilariousWorld.org is our web home. We're also on Twitter, and come visit us on Facebook. Search for the name of the show or search for Thwadballs. And thus concludes Season 4 of our show. I'm John Moe. Bye now. Something I don't know